and welcome to another special edition of the McGregor Podcast. I'm Mark Bricker, your host for this special Hot Topic Podcast series. And recently on a Wednesday night, as part of our Journey Together ministry, we hosted a Hot Topic night with Pastor Russell Howard leading. The topic, thinking biblically about persevering in faith, or what's the deal with ex-Christians? Well, joining me today is Pastor Russell. Welcome. Hey, Brother Mark. It is good to be here, man. Yeah, and welcome to this question and answer part of this special series on persevering in the faith. Now, the questions came from the Wednesday night where we recorded this uh, Hot Topic night. Yeah, Right, because we asked the folks that were there that night that if they had any questions for us to fill them out on a card and give them to us before they left. And I think some of them did. They actually did, yeah. We had these little yellow cards, and they actually came up with some pretty good questions this time. Uh, I, I think it's going to be kind of fun asking these. And we have a smart congregation. We do, and, and that's a good point. I think a lot of the questions that were asked are indicative of the fact that they are thinking Amen. biblically and thinking about uh, you know these questions and what the text says and what you were saying. And so I think that's always a good thing when that happens. So let's get rolling. We'll start you off with a relatively easy one here. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. What is the importance or significance of believing that there are no, quote, ex-Christians, only false converts? And they go on to say both are lost, so why the debate? All right. I, man, I agree that, that the, uh, the imperative, the, the um, important thing for us is to tell lost people about Jesus. And anyone who is is bluntly saying, I want nothing to do with Christ, is not a born-again person, whether they once said they wanted something to do with Christ or not. The issue at issue really is a theology of salvation. Uh, if you believe in ex-Christians, you then believe that salvation can be temporary. And if you believe that salvation can be temporary, then you've got some significant difficulty in your biblical understandings regarding the very nature of salvation. So really, hmm. this is a conversation about the nature of salvation by grace through faith more than about some specific example that we give an ex-Christian. Right. And I guess that was at the heart of the title, perseverance in faith. That's right. Yeah. That's right. What about you said, and, and, and you and I were having a discussion earlier today, and you used the word preservation. Is that almost a better word than perseverance in some ways? You know, or? it's both and. Okay. Um, we, are, we are kept saved because God saves Thank us you. and keeps us. But when we are kept saved, that's preservation, we persevere. Yeah. Those who are kept saved are kept in the process of sanctification and kept in the process of becoming more like Jesus, not perfectly, yeah. uh, but, but intentionally. Two sides of one coin. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Can you go, and this is the, the same person asking a, I can't call it a follow-up question because they haven't heard your answer yet, but here was <laughs> their second part of their question. Can you go from a false convert to becoming a real Christian? It would be really, really rare. Um, Hebrews 6, a passage that I alluded to last Wednesday night, speaks to the, um, uh, doesn't use the word inoculation, but it kind of speaks to that effect, that the, the person who has gone through all of those motions and truly believes themselves to be an ex-Christian, when an attempt is made to evangelize them, their first response to that is, been there, done that. And, and so there is less of a passion. Um, so it would be a very difficult and rare thing for someone who's gone through this sort of hardened 
ex-Christianism right. to, to come back to faith in Christ. Now, the good news is God is God, mm-hmm. and salvation is of the Lord, so perhaps. Perhaps. Next question. Why do we sometimes doubt our salvation through Christ, and yet we hunger for his word and continue to and continues to draw us closer to him? Is this the one of the examples of someone like Demas? Uh, let me let me set aside Demas for a moment. Right. Uh, the, the, the question is, why do we sometimes doubt our salvation? Um, I don't want to be flippant in my answer to that, but in, in, insecure unbelievers become insecure Christians. And sometimes maybe a, a life story has left a person uh, such that they are, they are not terribly secure in how they approach most things in life. Maybe they're, maybe they're insecure at work, and maybe they're insecure in their uh, family relationships, and, and maybe they are insecure in their relationship with Jesus. Uh, prayerfully, sanctification over time will address that. What I love about what this person said is uh, they, they hunger for his word, and his word continues to draw us, draws them closer to Jesus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> someone asked me the, the night we taught this, what about a person who struggles with sin? And my response was, I'm much more concerned about the person who doesn't. Yeah. So doubting yourself, you know, pointed out several passages with tonight about, about our our uh, necessity of continuing to cultivate the certainty of our salvation to make our calling and election sure. Part of sanctification. Yeah, part of sanctification is dealing honestly with Mm -hmm. those moments. Sometimes I've walked away from a situation, and and Brother Mark, you're much more sanctified than I am, but I bet bet you have too. You walked away from a situation going, how can a saved person have said what I just said? How or think a, what I just yeah, thought. Yeah, think or, what I'm thinking. So, yeah. so some level of, of doubt is used of God to drive us closer to Jesus. Yeah. But our security ultimately is in his character, not our performance. And that is what is changing us. Yeah. And I think we all, all to some degree, you know, insecure or not, will struggle at times with, with doubt, with faith, with belief. You know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Absolutely. Uh, and so I, I think that is part of that, that growing process, and I appreciate what you said yeah. uh, about that. Um, we'll come back to Demas in a minute because we have another question specifically uh, ah, on him. So hold, hold your thought on part two of that question. All right. Uh, please help us understand what is meant when a person says, quote, I rededicated my life. It's a confusing statement. Um, yeah, the first thing I want to do is agree with the questioner. Mm-hmm. I, I think the question or the, the term can be confusing. Um, and we use it all the time. Uh, we, in we, Christian circles. We, meaning Christian circles. Yes. Um, it's also a part, and if you've been around McGregor long, uh, you know that in, in recent years, our practice has, has um, not included what for many of our members are traditional altar calls. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I could digress and talk about the whole... But I'm not going to let you. No, because you're a good host. <laughs> but in altar call culture is where the phrase rededicate your life has, has come to such visibility. When I, um, when I uh, as with you, when I am in, in either a, a prospective member interview or just listening and hearing conversationally someone's testimony... Uh, and I'm and I'm coming around to a response to the question, and I hear that someone, for example, when they were 
some very young age. At that very young age, they, they went through some motions. Maybe they repeated a prayer and, and uh, even perhaps even were baptized. Mm-hmm. But then a few years passed, and at some subsequent point in their life, they really began to follow Jesus. You know, uh, it's, the classic terminology is I made Jesus my Savior when I was this old, but I made Jesus my Lord when I was this, as, as though you can accept half of him yeah. and then later accept half of him, which you cannot. And often when I hear those testimonies, my suspicion, and if I'm in a close enough setting, I'll probe a bit. I often suspect, generally suspect, that the rededication point is when they began to follow Jesus as Lord, that's their conversion. Mm-hmm. The earlier steps toward God are, are nothing evil, but they can be confusing. Right. Um, where you began to follow Jesus, you know, Jesus' favorite invitation was follow me, follow me. And the followers of Christ are those who have followed Christ. And if you hadn't followed Christ yet, you're not a Christ follower. So if, if by rededication you mean the point in, in your journey where you began to follow Jesus, that's conversion. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, there can be mile markers in the life of a believer, maybe some significant victory, maybe some significant attitude shift, maybe some real mile marker in, in, in your ongoing sanctification that is so dramatic that, that as you have grown to follow Christ, that mile marker really means something to you. And if you want to call those mile markers points of rededication, how could one have a problem with that? Right. But I would, avoid, I would avoid throwing the term around as much as it tends to get thrown around because I agree with the question. I think it can be very confusing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's go back to Demas now. How do we know? Because you made a pretty, uh, pretty dogmatic statement. Uh, me? <laughs> uh, on the Wednesday night that you were teaching this hot topic course, that you were very clear in saying that Demas was not, in fact, saved. Yeah. And so I the question I don't is, think he was. how do we know that Demas was not saved according to the biblical definition of being saved? So good right. question. Yeah, I want to I wanna, uh, throw a little footnote on the that, that, that back part of the question, according to the biblical definition of being saved. Right. Um, I don't, I don't these, these questions are anonymous and I wouldn't call out the questioner if, if it wasn't. But um, I, if, if, we were having a, if I were having a conversation face-to-face with someone who were asking that question, I would pause and say, help me out what with is what you mean by the biblical definition yeah. of being saved. Because often... I'm not saying anything about this questioner. I don't know this questioner. But, but there are those who define being the biblical definition of being saved by taking one or two verses. Um, for example, Paul's statement to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Well, all right. Well, that means we better know what believe means. And, and in, in the very same book of Acts, a few chapters before, Simon the magician is said to have believed, but according to Simon Peter's assessment, he absolutely was not saved. Mm-hmm. So I want to be careful with, with according to the biblical definition of being saved, because that's a marvelously simple but very, very deep mm-hmm. um, set of truths. One who is saved is one who has followed Jesus Christ in repentance and faith in response to the call of the Holy Spirit and has been regenerated and granted a new heart. There's a lot going on there from more than one verse. How do we know that Demas was not saved? I, uh, first, I don't. 
uh, <laughs> when I get to heaven one day, Demas Lee to be there or not. But I think I think a reasonable case can be made for the position that I took. A couple of things, uh, but I'll, I'll make it. I'll make it what I think to be the most simple. At the end of Paul's ministry, Demas had hung out with Paul and the guys for a while. And if that's evidence of salvation, then Judas hanging out with Jesus has to be even better evidence of salvation, right? And uh, Judas wasn't saved either. So hanging out with Paul isn't, isn't enough. Paul used very specific language when he spoke about about Demas's departure. The paragraph is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and it, uh, verse 9 and 10 specifically. Um, three people in verses nine, well, in verse 10, three people are said to have, to no longer, actually four, are said to no longer be around. Demas, um, actually three, Demas, Crescens, and Titus. But only of Demas does Paul make this statement. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Now, deserted is not the same as, as left. There's something pretty negative about that. And then the phrase, in love with this present world. Now, remember, the guy making that assessment is not John Doe. The guy making that assessment is an apostle. Okay. So you have an apostolic diagnosis that Demas's love for the world has choked out his love for serving the Lord. And that goes all the way back to the parable of the seeds, right? Remember, it was seed category number three. three. Yeah. Um, and also, the, again, the specific phrase, he loved the world. Uh, the apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I, I don't know that Paul looked that up in John or John looked up what Paul said about Demas, but I know the Holy Spirit inspired both and the wording is the same. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, it, is, it is quite fair to label Demas as one whose faith didn't last because it was never real. And perhaps a good warning for us as well, just to remember that uh, what the priorities are for that, those yeah. of us that are following Christ. Yeah, you know, we're, we're stuck in the world. You and I both got here today in vehicles that we own, and those vehicles, best I know, were manufactured on the world, and we're sitting in chairs that were manufactured in the world. And I'm very fond of my microphone that I'm using right now. So at what point does love of the world become an issue? Well, when you come to a fork in the road and it's serve Jesus or act out your love for the world. Demas came to that fork in the road, and according to Paul's assessment, he chose the world. Mm. And John said, when you do that, you're flagging yourself as someone who just doesn't have the love of the Father in him. Which leads us to our next question. Is backsliding or living in sin a red flag for, truly, for not truly being saved? Um, Yes. Now, it is a matter of degree, as are so many things. The role of the body of Christ, and people say, you know, that, that the, whenever I hear anyone speak of, of being saved, living for Jesus, but not holding the church in high regard, and I don't mean this church, although I'm certainly biased. I mean, Christianity is meant to be lived out in a living, active, visible body of Christ. And so when I backslide, when I am living in sin, 
the church discipline process of a healthy functioning body of Christ is supposed to gather around me, um, gently and privately pop me on the nose the first time, and then progress all the way up to a, a formal address by the body of Christ. Hey, what's going on in your life is not consistent with your claim to be a follower of Christ. And Mark, if, if, if that happens, it is difficult for me to imagine a scenario where a born-again person would tell the body of Christ, stick it in your ear. Um, now, if that corrective and instructive and disciplining function isn't being done by the body of Christ, and the person is allowed to roll on in a sinful lifestyle um, without having a confrontation about it, that, that's really, really bad. Right. Again, if you're struggling with sin, well, Paul described that in Romans 7, but if you're just living in a, in a lifestyle that is marked by ongoing sin, and there's no struggle. You're just perfectly okay with it. Does God the Holy Spirit have residence and possession in that heart? Yeah. I think it's a very fair question. So, yeah, red flag. Makes me think of our earlier question. What, was, what did Paul do in confronting Demas with his sin of his love for the world, I wonder. Because obviously he would not have just written him off. Yeah, or maybe by that time he had. Yeah, maybe by, by that, that time. time but, but what had happened prior yeah, to that? Yeah, we don't, we don't have that, that yeah. series of scenes, but you, you can bet there was a tearful conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how do we humans... <laughs> I can't read the hand right here too well. Or I just can't read. How, how do we know someone? How do I get no in human? I don't know. How do we know someone is a complete apostate or one who is just... I was able to uh, read these earlier. Yeah, who is just ensnared? By sin for a season. Yeah, there we go. How do we know someone who is a complete apostate or someone who is just ensnared by sin for a season? And by the way, you never use yeah. the word apostate Wednesday night. When no, you they're using, the, the writers of these questions are using some theological vocabulary us, I did not use. And that, that blesses me. Because give us the definition for apostate. An apostate is one who has fallen away. That's yeah. the, 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 the root word to apostatize is fall to fall away. away. Um, and that can be, for those who believe that salvation is not necessarily permanent, they mean by apostate, someone who was saved and now isn't. Right. Uh, I would define the term as someone who once appeared to be mm. saved, perhaps even to themselves, but now isn't. Right. And the, and the question here is very akin to the previous question. Mm. Um, how, how, can we, how can we know? <laughs> well, again, if church discipline is functioning in an effective way, and loving relationships. Remember, the first couple of steps of church discipline are very quiet. And so if I have a friend who claims Christ, but who is living in a, in a way that their life is coming to be characterized by a sinful behavior, and I love them, remember, the opposite of love is apathy. If I am unconditionally, self-sacrificially committed to that well-being, that self-sacrifice Self-sacrifice may include my willingness to go have an uncomfortable conversation, right? You know, and say to that friend, "Look, maybe I'm reading this wrong. Only you and I are in this conversation. I'm not shaming you. I'm not dragging anything publicly. As you and I care about one another, this that I see in your life, either I'm seeing it wrong, in which case explain it to me, 
or I'm seeing it right, in which case it needs fixing. Yeah. And the, the individual thus confronted, their response is extraordinarily instructive in that moment. If their response is, whoa, I, I, I am prompted, I am grieved that my friend is confronting me. You know, we're back to uh, 2 Corinthians 7 that we've been talking about some on Sunday mornings. Um, I am grieved by the fact that I needed confronting about that. And that, that, that gets addressed starting now. Or bug off and leave me alone. It's my sin and it's none of your business. And if I stay in that, uh, then the church discipline should increase to turn up the heat. And there should be plentiful opportunity to repent. But if those opportunities are missed, then it isn't conclusive, but it's awfully instructive. Yeah, regarding, regarding that person's... Pretty. Reality of their walk with God. And it is, I guess it is sad that more of us as believers don't take seriously those early stages of Matthew 18 to, to have those conversations. You know what? Um, uh, quietly, one-on-one initially, uh, and probably have an opportunity to deal with a lot of these things. If you have the right friends, if you are the right friends, those conversations will be a part of your life. Yeah. They just will. If you yoke yourself. If you yoke yourself up equally Equally. with other strong believers. Yes. Uh, Please discuss 2 Peter 2, 20 through 21 uh, in tonight's context. And do you assign a similarity to Hebrews 6? Yeah, I love, love, love the question. Whoever, uh, kudos to whoever wrote this question because you you are thinking in a systematic way and using scripture to interpret scripture. And the short answer is, yep, I believe 2 Peter 2, 20 and 21 is describing it with fewer words exactly the same dynamic as Hebrews 6. This is a person... Who, who engages in perhaps the sociological and psychological aspects of Christianity, but not the spiritual. Um, you want me to Peter. read that? Or you yeah, go ahead it? if you've got it. I'm, you want me to go all the way to 17? Or? Uh, yeah, yeah <clears throat> give, it, give it the whole paragraph. Yeah, these are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And here's verse 20. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Um, exactly the same dynamic of Hebrews 6. They're worse off mm-hmm. after their foray into an exploration of Christianity, which they might identify with coming to faith. They are the seed on either the thorny ground or the rocky ground of Jesus's parable of the sower. Yeah. Uh, something sprung up or seemed to, but either the, the tribulations of the present world or the pleasures of the present world caused that, that what might have been didn't come to maturity and, and ever bear any fruit. Um, that is the non-persevering 
non-believer. And I believe that's exactly what's in view here. Yeah. And I love the question. Very good. It's interesting how, how much of this can be understood best when understanding Jesus' parable in Matthew 13. It, yeah, it really is. Jesus, as, as so often is the case in progressive revelation, Jesus has established the framework. Um, I will say this really, really carefully. Uh, I'm, I'm going to chase a brief rabbit, Mark, but you put me on to it. Um, <laughs> Jesus is God come to, to, to human flesh, but he is not the final word in progressive revelation. Uh, all of the book of Acts, all of the epistles, all of those things happened later. Right. And so it is, if you understand the doctrine of a of sort of a chronologically progressive revelation through the giving of the entire written word of God, it is unsurprising that Jesus would, would, would teach something and in one sense, you say, well, he's the last word. He's God. And that's hard to argue His with. His letters are red. Yeah. Yeah. He's got red <laughs> letters, but he's not, he's not the final revelation that God sent mm -hmm. through God, the Holy Spirit, who is as much God as God, the son is God, right. giving revelation through the apostles. Sometimes we get more detailed commentary that sheds further light as with the parable of the sowers and these passages in second Peter right. two and Hebrews six. Yes. Excellent. Good rabbit chase there. Thank you. I do that a lot, and they're not always any good. All right. Uh, regarding putting a millstone around a little one's neck and Matthew 25, what of Christians who do these things? How can we separate the wheat from the tares? Okay, I think that's two separate really it, great yeah, questions. Yeah, I think it is too. Yeah. First, the, the dire warning of Matthew 25 basically is if you cause a little child to stumble, you'd be better off if you'd never been created. Uh, Jesus is not saying that that sin is an instant get-out-of-heaven-free card, that you are, you are consigned to hell. However, turn the statement, read, read the statement in, in a sort of a reverse logic. A person who is causing children to stumble, that's a crime of intent. Um, I have set out to create spiritual havoc in the lives of little ones. That's not a born-again person. Right. And when all is said and done, we've talked briefly about doctrines of, of, of reward and doctrines of, of, of degrees of reward and degrees of punishment. Um, you don't want to go to hell, period. You do not want to go to hell because you have unforgiven sin when you stand in judgment, period. You want to make it worse? Um, participate in the spiritual corruption of little children. Yeah. And whatever demon is pumping the bellows is going to pump it all that harder. So then the second question, then, how can we separate the wheat from the tares? Ah, uh, we don't. We don't. Um Parable of the wheat and the tares talks about the, the fact that, that weeds are going to grow among the wheat. There was a type of, of weed in the Middle East, apparently, that was almost indistinguishable from healthy wheat. And in broadcast sown fields, the stalks would grow together so that only at harvest, unless you were prepared to really damage your field, you couldn't go into your field and say, I'm pulling out every possible tear. Hmm. No, you let the field grow. And then at harvest, the separation is made. Yeah. There will always be false belief in the church. Some of it um, malicious even, the wolves that are warned about in Acts chapter 20. But the tares are always going to be there. 
and only at the end will our Lord will be very, very clear. You know, we talked about, about the Lord's statement in judgment. Um, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, tragically, um, and I think this is especially true, Mark, in, in, you know, we talk about how our culture has changed, and it has, but let's face it, our culture, as historical times and places go, is still pretty church-friendly. And it's um, possible to drift into church involvement that doesn't really cost you anything. And in those cultures, like ours today, um, they're going to be tears. Yeah. And I think this is not the obviously the, the only reason, but one of the reasons why here at McGregor, uh, when folks show up for any of our worship services, we want to make sure that the gospel is always presented. Always. Extremely always. clear and uh, an opportunity for anyone to hear that and obviously to even respond. Yeah. Unbelievers need the gospel. Uh, every time we gather, there's going to be unbelievers yeah. in the room. And even people who would, who would be... Even solid believers need to be reminded of the gospel whereby they're saved. It makes us fall more deeply in love with Jesus, and that makes us holy. Absolutely. Um, This is not a question, but uh, just as we end, I know that, as we mentioned earlier, that for most believers, uh, when you start talking about a topic like this, the the questions sometimes become even greater, especially as it relates to one's own salvation or doubts in that a word of encouragement uh, for yeah. someone that may be doubting or just wondering the, the question about their own salvation. And, and, and can I add, we often, often this is personal, not because of our own doubt, but because of somebody that we love. Yeah. Somebody who is, who is close to us, maybe a family mm-hmm. member or yes, dear friend. Absolutely. Who, who is in that category of, I, I once thought they were a Christian, but, but now they don't even claim Christ. What do we do with that? Um, for your own doubts, spend time with Jesus, fall in love with his people, have the kinds of friends that are bearing witness to your life. Mm. That are, that, and I don't mean telling a testimony. I mean eyes on, hearts on your life so that when you drift, you have, you have friends who go, man, I, that just doesn't sound like you, the Christ follower to me, so that you've got those rails. And that's not because reinforcing your behavior will make you a Christian if you aren't one. Either at some point you're going to give up completely, at which point you should have faith in Christ and be saved. <laughs> but it's going gonna, it's gonna to make you a more confident believer. Um, and take those doubts to Jesus. And remember, uh, he's trustworthy to save all who turn from their sin and trust him by faith. Mm-hmm. So, and if you doubt, well, I don't know if I've turned from my sin or not. Ask the three people who are watching your life most closely. There you go. Um, so, and, and come to Jesus. Right. And for the family member or friend, the dear one who um, would classify themselves as an ex-Christian, pray for their soul and tell them about Jesus. Amen. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, I think that wraps up our Q&A episode of this podcast series. I want to thank our listeners for being a part of this special McGregor podcast series entitled Thinking Biblically About Persevering in Faith and especially being a part of this, our third and final episode of this series. Thank you so much for joining us.